Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, this is Dan Richter, the fellow who played Moonwatcher, the man-ape in Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And you're listening to The Dr. Sky Show. Welcome once again to the exciting program that you tell us you like so much, the Dr. Sky Experience, exclusively here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Yes, WABC, as we like to call it, the crown jewel of radio, as we journey beyond the Earth to another exciting edition from the great realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, with American exceptionalism interlaced into our program. Today, an exciting interview. Back in April of 1968, Stanley Kubrick's epic film, 2001 A Space Odyssey, appeared first in New York City to rave reviews. And today, we're privileged and honored to speak with Dan Richter, the man in the ape suit, as we begin, of course, with this great epic, 2001 A Space Odyssey, here on the Dr. Sky Experience. Today, ladies and gentlemen, a very special treat. For the next 30 minutes or so, we'll be speaking with Dan Richter, who toured the United States in the early 1960s as a lead performer with the American Mime Theater. In 1966, Stanley Kubrick hired him to choreograph a star in the 2001's The Dawn of Man sequence. Later, Richter spent four years working with John Lennon and Yoko Ono on such film and music projects as Imagine. The topic of his next memoir, he now lives in Southern California, where he is a film industry executive. And it's a privilege and honor to have Dan Richter, author of Moonwatcher's memoir, A Diary of 2001, A Space Odyssey, as our special guest today. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Steve. How are you? Hey, doing great. You know, I just read your book from cover to cover, and I really welcome, that is, all the listeners of the Dr. Sky Show, to follow and pay particular attention to what I consider to be one of my favorite all-time science fiction movies. And still, according to many, as you know, Dan, still, and I quote, the grandest of all science fiction movies, Stanley Kubrick's, in many cases, epic movie, one that I grew up with when I first saw it in 1968. But before we begin about the movie, tell us a little bit about yourself and talk to us about what a mime does. I find this to be so fascinating. Well, I, you know, most people today think of a mime as a guy standing on the street like a statue or doing a, a, a version of Michael Jackson's Moonwalk. But mime is a great t- tradition of silent acting, and uh, it's been done in many different ways in different countries. Uh, we're probably, you probably best know the Marcel Marceau, sort of the French t- uh, tradition with sure. whiteface. But uh, my background was, uh, I studied with a fellow named Paul Curtis, who founded the American Mime Theater in New York, and, and much of uh, what we did was based in using method acting and extending those those strong real feelings into large movement and creating characters and situations that basically existed without words. Um, 
it was that kind of work that I had done and the research I did later in Japan with the No and Kabuki theaters that uh, interested Stanley Kubrick in my uh, my ideas. And basically, what I was able to do as a mime was to take uh, bring to life uh, man apes from three, four million years ago, uh, and turn to, try to turn them into real beings that had uh, actual feelings and thoughts and reactions and sense of character. Pan, it's great to have you here on the show, and it's amazing, folks. I don't know if you're like me out there, ladies and gentlemen, but this movie to me is so special. I put it on my iPod. I have as a screensaver here, Dan, the eye, as we call it, of hell, the magical computer in this movie, but I never thought in my lifetime I would have the privilege and honor of speaking to someone who obviously takes us from the dawn of man, literally, to when we move out into space. Tell us a little bit, and the listeners a little bit, about how you became involved in this most phenomenal movie, and I find this story from your book to be most intriguing. Well, you know, at the time, Steve, I had uh, taken a leave of absence uh, from uh, the Mime Theater to study mime traditions and forms all around the world, and I had spent a year traveling, and I, uh, my ideas had changed so much that I really felt I couldn't go back, and I wanted to explore some of the things that I had been learning. And so I had found myself in London, and I was teaching mime privately, and I was also uh, publishing a poetry review, and I became involved with Alan Ginsberg and some other very well-known poets like Gregory Corso and uh, uh, Bill Burroughs and uh, these folks into doing a, a massive poetry reading at the Albert Hall in London. And it was really a, a sort of a, a, a time changer. Uh, things were happening so quickly then. And uh, it got a great deal of notoriety. And through one of the fellows, John Eason, who was producing it with me, um, was very good friends with uh, uh, Mike Wilson, who was working with Arthur C. Clarke, uh, you know, the great writer, sure. who also wrote uh, 2001. And Arthur and Stanley had been trying to get the opening of 2001 for two years and had not been able to do it. They had shot all the live action, but they still couldn't get anything at work. They had tried, they had tried actors, dancers, uh, uh, stuntmen, uh, even had the idea of animation, but nothing worked. So they said, why don't we talk, why don't we just try a mime? You no, know, we'd never talked to a mime. And, and, um, Mike Wilson, uh, when Arthur was talking with him, said, I know a mime. His name is Dan Richter. And, um, so I got, uh, asked to go out to let Stanley pick my mind. And I could see immediately what his problem was. And I, I realized that a mime could solve the problem. And the problem was it was the opening of the picture. And you had to be, you had to be, grab the audience immediately. And through my, uh, ability to take, uh, the method acting style and extended into large characterized movement, uh, I felt it was a solution. So I showed Stanley right then and there what I would do, and um, he literally hired me on the spot, and I spent the next year building it. Well, it's great, Dan. I mean, a lot of hard work went into your presentation to become the choreographer for this particular story about the scene that we're going to talk about later, The Dawn of Man. But describe on a more personal level, Mr. Kubrick, I mean, this man, obviously a film genius, describe your feelings about him and uh, some of the things that maybe many people don't know that you'd like to tell this audience about Stanley Kubrick. Well, first of all, you know, Stanley has been portrayed as this, uh, you know, paranoid, uh, obsessive, nut job 
genius, you know, who uh, recluse, etc. But nothing could really be farther from the uh, the truth. I mean, here was a man that has a great sense of humor, was a wonderful friend, um, was had this insatiable curiosity all the time. He and the ability to never settle for something unless it was exactly what it must be. And so he was prepared to work work very hard, work work endlessly, and put all kinds of research and and uh, time into things to get them right. And those of us who were were willing to do that with him went along on these these this wonderful trip with him. And you know, at the end of the time, it was. It, I wasn't working with an obsessive, compulsive, crazy guy. I was working with this wonderful, smart, uh, you know, lovable, humorous genius. Um, and it was, uh, uh, you know, it was a, we had a deep, deep, deep friendship. And uh, uh, it was just, uh, it was a, he's a, he was a magnificent person. Folks, I just want to remind you, you're listening to a very special edition of the Dr. Sky Show today. A very special special guest, that is, is Dan Richter, author of Moon Watcher's Memoir, A Diary of 2001, A Space Odyssey, his involvement as playing Moon Watcher, and the choreographer for the very special scene that we're talking about here in the opening part of 2001, A Space Odyssey, something that Dan is fascinating, as it seems, from the old-time history of how man became what we are today from the early primates all the way up to the end of the story of some sort of a star child and rebirth. It is fascinating to have you here, and I do appreciate your time. You know, what I'd love to find out about is this whole process of being able to become accepted by Stanley Kubrick, then the assignment, uh, something that's not easy for anybody to do, is to replicate not only yourself, but find what? About a total of 20 people I had to choreograph this scene. Yeah, you know, Steve, I had to find 20 other people to do this. Uh, I, it had it, taken me three or four months. And, and when you say hard work and study, we, we realized that nothing, there was no way you could realistically, we didn't have the technology we have today, CGI graphics and all of that. We had, to, we had to build this on a human body. And the human body just doesn't look right. The legs are far too long and the, the head is too big. We're just not ape-like enough. And so we had to find ways to create illusions, and and we did uh, slow motion photography of the lower parts of gibbons, uh, you know, the um, different speeds of, of chimpanzees interacting. And we finally put all the pieces together, and we were able to get something, but then I had to be able to find... You have to remember, I had very specialized training, so I was able to do this on my body, but I had to find 20 other people who were physically smaller than me because I was the lead guy, the lead ape, um, and uh, we, we, we estimated we must have looked through at least 40,000 people, if you could include all the lists we went through. We went Amazing. Through Long distance, every long distance runner uh, in every high in every high school or high school level in in England, uh, every dancer we could find. We had open open auditions, uh, uh, cattle calls, if you will, at Covent Garden over and over and over again. Where there'd be rows and rows of people would come and stand, and I would first have to just sort them out by body type. And walking down the rows, going no, 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 yes, no, 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 yes, no, 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 and, just, and then. Sure all the yeses and what etc and it just was an immense amount of work but Stanley was like that he was prepared to uh, do whatever it takes to get to get the final result 
So skinny was an asset. I'm from reading the book. Obviously, the the skinnier or trimmer you were, this gave you what a better chance because of all the padding and all the extra things. Yeah, well, that's the problem. You see, the problem is that you know if you look at chimpanzees and and uh, apes, they don't have any they don't have any waist. We have a big pelvis because we have to support the legs. We walk upright, and every if you look at the human body from that point of view, you begin to realize everything is built around these these big legs legs that we balance on, and they're seated on a big pelvis. And the chimps don't have that, and early man didn't have that. So if you, we're going to have to put padding on them, so we would have to start with as skinny as possible so we could build up the shoulders and uh, work, work the back of the neck so the head didn't seem as large. And so, we, so I needed really, really thin people to start with. And let's talk for a moment about the specific type of early man. I think we're looking in the book, and you're describing, if I'm correct on this and correct me on it, yeah. you're looking more at the Australopithecus as a true man-ape. We're not looking pretty much at the just ape-like creature. You're looking at the no, more no, evolved we, we man We were very right? specific. We were, you know, uh, there was, you have to remember when we did this, there was very, what we know, we know a lot today. We didn't back then. But uh, Raymond Dart uh, uh, had studied some bones down in South Africa of the Australopithecus africanus. Mm-hmm. And it was, we used, sort of used that as our model. And uh, we were able to get it. We had a pretty good idea of what it looked like. Uh, I had uh, I had spent time with with people at the uh, the the Natural History Museum in London, uh, and you know who do reconstructions from bones. And so we had a we had a pretty good idea of what we were trying to get to. But we knew it had it had much shorter legs, uh, much uh, much smaller pelvis, uh, longer arms, a smaller head. Uh, Etc. But we were going. We were trying to do an Australopithecus africanus. Yeah. It's very interesting. And just to remind people about filmography, of course, with as you know best from Stanley Kubrick, this particular movie, 2001: A Space Odyssey, 1968, released was sandwiched in what between the, the, the Doctor Strange Love and Clockwork Orange, if I'm correct. That, that's correct. Yes. So this is this man never stopped. I mean, he he starts off. I'm looking at the filmography. I mean, we can go way back to 1950, but movies that a lot of people probably remember, of course, Spartacus, Lolita, as I mentioned, Dr. Strangelove, then, of course, moving into the 80s, The Shining, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. These are what? Some of the greatest movies that uh, the, the entire world has ever been Oh, in. you include Paths of Glory and Barry Lyndon in there, too. Absolutely. I mean, this, 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 and what's so amazing about Stanley is these movies are so different from each other. This man was able to he would he would embrace a genre and take a look like he looked at two thousand and one. You have to understand before two thousand and one, it was all Flash Gordon. You yeah. know, it was you know that looked like a, a firecracker spouting out the back of a, 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 t- a toilet tissue tube with a you know a, a, as that was the rocket. You right, know? very amateur. Yeah, very much so, and because nobody could, the, the technology wasn't there yet to be able to do it. There had been, uh, guess what, the War of the Worlds, a few things like that, that, but they were all, it was all B-movie, basically. Right, like and, the movie, as you describe in the book, Things to Come, obviously yeah. he didn't want his movie, uh, even though there were some good parts about William Cameron Menzies' movie in 36, he wanted the what, the cutting-edge technology of the time to look like what we think is of today. 
Well, that, and that's why he worked very closely with NASA and with the, with many of the, many of the, uh, the corporations that were providing things for NASA and for the, for the space industry. So that the, uh, uh, we were, we were, we were, um, uh, Fred Ordway Jr., who had, uh, was a NASA fellow who came onto the project. They were looking at everything from the, the same way the, the people at NASA would look at things. They were trying to bring a, a truth to it. Uh, and you have to understand is we didn't, and we didn't have any of the stuff we have today. The, this just, the idea of computers, you know, uh, we, we didn't have it. Everything, many of the shots were literally done in the camera by taking a shot with, with masks and, and with, you know, black velvet backgrounds, winding the, winding them back and then reshooting them with a different model in front of it over and over again. And it's oh, it's fascinating. And one of the things on a very technical nature, that I always enjoyed about the 2001 Space Odyssey was flying to the moon. You'd see all these displays that were lit, as we now have today, you know, flat panel displays. But from your book, I understood that there were 16-millimeter projectors literally shining onto a screen, like a one-side screen. So that was what was creating that illusion of uh, like a regular uh, flat panel television today. Uh, absolutely. And we had all, all of these old Bell and Howell projectors, you know, that were... Were, uh, uh, were were literally mounted behind, uh, you know, the uh, wherever the display was supposed to be, um, and they worked. They worked. Well, folks, we're having our special interview today. Very much appreciate Dan Richter's time. He is literally the man ape that you see in the epic Stanley Kubrick film, 2001: A Space Odyssey, in the opening sequence, a rather lengthy sequence, setting up, in my opinion, a fascinating but still very very. Sometimes I think difficult movie, Dan, to understand. What's what's basically the story, in your opinion, behind the monolith? I have to ask about that. Well, what, you know, the it? thing the thing is, Steve, is there was a very specific story, a very clear story. Mm -hmm. uh, Stanley chose chose to to make it uh, very very misty and very very abstract. But the the monolith basi basically it comes from a story that Arthur wrote called The Sentinel, where these uh, these uh, creatures are going through space trying to find other sentient life forms that they can they can communicate with and they finally find some very primitive form life form on a on a planet but they realize it'll take millions of years before that life form has evolved far enough so they can actually communicate with them so they leave a sentinel to send a signal and so that was the basis of the idea the idea of the monolith is the monolith the first time we see it the monolith puts the idea in my head to start killing the the idea the, the concept is is that once this, these early men start to kill they will begin to dominate and they will rise and evolve into man once they've reached the point where they can get to the moon they will sense the new monolith on the moon which is buried and there's a strong magnetic signal so they'll sense it and once it's the uh, sunlight touches it it will send a signal out to the uh, the, the moons of Jupiter uh, where there is another monolith which is the 
the gateway uh, we, we became the Stargate in the movie that's the gateway where man will pass through and it's a, a kind of a dimensional shift sure. will evolve into the star child who can communicate with the uh, with the aliens a very advanced movie and is a, I think it's a great movie for many reasons it's amazed, I'm amazed though Dan about how many young folks that I talk to and we do this interview here on something called an archive called Teen Talk to open up young people's minds and I'm hoping we're doing that and I'm sure we are with this interview, but I'm amazed still at how many of the young people today, when I say, have you seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, they shrug their shoulders and say, what's that? See? <laughs> yeah. So I think we need to com completely educate the youth about these great movies, and I think we're doing that uh, one interview at a time. Just on a personal note, my fascination with the movie, not just about your scene, and it's a beautiful scene, The Dawn of Man, did you ever get to meet uh, Keir DeLay and, and have any contact with him? Oh, yes. I, I see Keir periodically. We, we've become good friends. Uh, I, you know, we've, we have uh, you know, a 35th anniversary screening, a 40th anniversary screening, a screening here, a screening there, and sometimes I turn up at those and Keir's there and, and we see each other. I've also, you know, I visited him in his home in Connecticut. And um, yeah, we've uh, we've we've become quite close. Well, a wonderful story. I see, of course, you know best, and maybe some of the listeners do. He is astronaut Dave Bowman, and there's what such an amazing transformation of him throughout that entire movie, to say the least. Oh, absolutely, and much of that goes to Stuart Freeborn, the, um, the amazing makeup artist who also built the costumes for me as well. You know, in the few moments we have with you, again, we appreciate your time. Talk to us about the MGM Studios, if I'm pronouncing it right. Was it Boreham Wood? Is that correct? Boreham Wood, yeah. Yes. Elstree Boreham Wood. The, these studios were built uh, in the, the late 30s, and they were classic, uh, big, old uh, studios. They're gigantic stages. Uh, between, uh, I think we must have had a, I can, don't remember exactly, I think it was around 12, 12 major stages and uh, laboratories and workshops and, and uh, uh, places for the, to build the sets and big back lot. And this had been a, this had been a major, major studio. Now, st when Stanley found it, he realized he just, he literally, we took over most of it. There were some other, other things going on. There was a thing called the Prisoner television show with Pat McGowan they were doing there. Yes. But there was, uh, uh, there, we basically took it over. And uh, it was like, talk about a, a playpen for a, a film genius. For Stanley, it was perfect because we would sometimes be shooting on three, four, five stages at a time. That's incredible, and, and so much work, and I think what goes into what I think folks will get out of this book, I mean, this is a very personal account, to say the least, right, Dan, of, of your story, and I, I find it very interesting, because it's never dry. I could continue to read this if it were twice as long, and I mean that sincerely, because you're putting into your feeling, your heart and soul into this. It's not easy doing what you did, and you convey that message correctly, uh, I think very correctly, and uh, and also very very clearly, I should say throughout this book. Well, well, thank, thank you, Steve. You know, I mean, one of the things is that when, when Stanley died, I realized that I was the, sort of the last person who really knew how we had done all these, um, these wonderful and amazing things. And, and, and uh, with the encouragement of Arthur Clarke, I decided to write it because I wanted to tell people this story, which I think is one of the, one of the, the most uh, amazing stories in film history, is how you build a really great moment, how a, gr a great moment was built. 
You know, there's another kind of very comical but serious side to the story, and I think you're describing, and I, I don't know uh, the exact moment in time that this happened, but you're out because of some security where certain hands and maybe some of the props might have been missing, allegedly because another movie was shooting close by. You and Stanley are out at a remote location, and I think the story goes right down that somebody crouched down inside like a, a little berm, and they what? They got close enough to what? Take a few of the items from you? Yes. Well, what was happening is that we weren't sure what was, but you have to know the Planet of the Apes was, was shooting. Yeah. And uh, we, we thought it was probably them, and I have no way of knowing whether I don't want to start rumors or cast. Sure, them. sure. But all we knew is that parts of our costume were being stolen. And so Stanley and I, everything got locked up at night, and Stanley and I would have to constantly meet about, uh, you know, the changes we were making. So I had to show him, uh, I work, was working on hands and feet and, uh, feet and a modification to the mask, and he and I went out in the back lot, way out in this field, and along a hedgerow, and we were, uh, I, I went out and the, put, the, put it on and showed him, and then we were discussing it. And we put the, 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 the head and the hands down where we were sitting, and we were walking around talking a bit uh, and we came back and they were gone and then wow. we looked behind where we were sitting and there was uh, like a drainage ditch along there and somebody had must have crawled on their belly out there <laughs> <laughs> well, back while we were out talking had grabbed these things and crawled away with them that's incredible so you're not safe anywhere that's why no. I heard today they no. lock up uh, many of these props a little differently but you have to learn by experience I guess and uh, yes. hope I'm glad it came out very good for you and Mr. Kubert in the moments we have with you this is your story and I'd like to go back to Moonwatcher it's difficult just having the motions to make Moonwatcher believable. And as you described, the suits with the Velcro, you don't want to see the Velcro come apart. You want to make sure the masks look real and the motions look real. If that's not enough, tell us. You had to cut certain people. That's not an easy thing to do, even though they work very hard. But describe to us, as your book does, without giving us all the secret sauce, the exact moments. I mean, this didn't just happen overnight. You had to shoot many times. The suits are incredibly hot. And to the point where somebody, if they didn't watch their body temperature, you could what, faint or maybe far worse? Well, they could go into heat exhaustion or, or even worse, heat stroke. The temperatures were in the hundred, reached the hundred in the hundred and thirties. There was massive amount of lightning. Lighting. The, you have to. The background was this was all a front project, a complex front projection system that had never been used that we literally invented to shoot this shot. And so to get the color temperature right between the, the, the front projected background and the, the light on us, they had to pump so much light in, into there that the temperature was just impossible. We, uh, uh, we had a nurse on the set, a doctor uh, on call. We had compressed air, which would be, they shoved tubes into us the minute Stanley said cut and ventilate the costumes and take the helmets off. It was uh, not only that; it was dusty, and we were all wearing uh, um, uh, contact lenses to change the uh, the look and the color of our eyes. Which uh, and the dust was getting in our. It was, it, uh, Steve, it was uh, it was pure hell. And meanwhile, you've got to, you're trying to give a great performance. Yes, so the you know, and, on, and take, literally, no pun intended, the heat is on too. Oh, absolutely! And that one one of the scenes where I, I hit uh, the other uh, kill the other ape. 
we shot 42 times. I hit that poor Richard Woods on the that side of the head 42 times with a urethane bone. You know? And Richard Woods, of course, is playing one ear, correct? That's correct, yeah. Very interesting. I mean, this is stuff that when you see the movie, folks, I'm going to encourage anybody out there, here's the challenge, the Dr. Sky Challenge. If you have not seen this movie, make it a point, because not only will you get to learn so much about the genius of Stanley Kubrick, the 148-minute movie, what? Uh, let me let me go to you, Dan. Tell us, what's your opinion of this movie? What would you be doing if you were a movie critic? What would you say about it? Uh, well, it's, it's got to be one of the, the ten greatest movies of all time. It certainly was a movie that changed everything. Nothing, the movie making wasn't the same after 2001. It almost entered, uh, ushers in a, a whole modern era in terms of special effects. And, uh, and uh, well, movies like Avatar today could not have been made without 2001 being made. It's a, a step and that's fascinating forward. because myself and my lady friend, we went to see Avatar, believe it or not, four times. And I think it's a fascinating movie, but you're so right. We take for granted today everything done from maybe kids working and playing with video games and us using the computer character generation. But this was done, what, the old-fashioned way, and that's the way that lives the test of time. It was. And speaking of computers, IBM was called in because we were trying to figure out how to get this thing finished. It just seemed so impossible. There were so many elements. And they ran, they, some guys came in, did a time study and whatnot, and they estimated that it was going to take years, you know, like 20 years to finish. Sure. And so we had to just uh, throw out what they did and keep on working. Dan, it's a privilege and honor. And in closing, we've got about two minutes. I just wanted, if you don't mind, to talk to, to have you talk to us about John Lennon and Yoko Ono. This is also fascinating. Uh, what, what can you share with us in that short time about your Well, experience? very briefly, Yoko and I had known, when I was studying the theater in Japan, Yoko and I had met. She was doing performances there, and I was doing performances. We had become very close friends. And, and later on in London, uh, we... She and her then husband and um, me and my wife, we had apartments side by side. And when uh, Yoko's marriage fell apart and she met John and they fell in love, they they wanted us to help them uh, work. Uh, you know, the, the Yoko had had encouraged John to do things on his own, separate from the Beatles, and they asked me to come help them uh, do everything themselves, not not depend on outside people to do it. And to uh, and John wanted to change things and a change the way of doing things, and he asked me to sort of. Go take that trip along with them, and I did. And wow. was, I, I ended up doing four of the record covers, and I produced a number of their experimental movies, and uh, I lived with them for four years, and it was an amazing time. Uh, you know, Steve, it was the time when everything changed. And, uh, well, I go back a long way. I'm 54, but I can just remember the very sad day living in New York City when we heard the tragic news that John, John Lennon had been shot by a deranged person, and uh, very sad, cut down what, in the prime of his life. Absolutely, absolutely. He had so much yet to give and so much living to do, and he had such a new young son, and and he was he had he had found a kind of happiness at that point that had eluded him for many years before. It was a, a terrible tragedy, not only for the world but for him personally and for the family. Tell us, Dan Richter, what's uh, some of the latest projects you're doing, and uh, what do you do nowadays? 
Well, I've pretty much uh, retired now. I've uh, written a book about those periods, uh, the period of the years with uh, John Yoko, which hopefully I'll get a publisher for, from and get, get for and get out one of these days. But I'm I'm doing a lot of mountain climbing now and rock climbing. Uh, if you can believe a 70 year old ex ex mine, you know, hanging from ropes on on walls in Yosemite. That's me. Well, and, Dan, I think I have a lot of confidence after seeing what you did in 2001, a space odyssey, taking us through the dawn of man as moon watcher. I would have no doubt that that's probably the next generation for Dan Richter. And with that, Dan, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. Dan Richter, Moonwatcher's memoir, Diary of 2001, A Space Odyssey. He is Moonwatcher, playing one of the great man-apes, one of the great movies of all time, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. If you've not seen this movie, ladies and gentlemen, see it. See it again, because each time, Dan, I think you can tell us, I come up with kind of like a different set of questions every time I watch it, correct? Absolutely. You know, Tom Hanks was telling me he's seen it over 55 times, and he's still discovering stuff. That's fascinating. It's been really great talking to you, Steve. We want to thank you for being our special guest today on the Dr. Sky Show. Great guest, ladies and gentlemen, from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. And as with Dan Rector, many different celebrities from, of course, movies and, of course, music as we continue to open up young minds and all of our minds. And don't forget, as Dr. Sky reminds each and every one of you, always remember to keep your eyes to the skies, and I think, Dan, you would agree with that, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dan Richter.